0: and Welcome to episode 577 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I have been flat out because here at the Australian Writers' Centre, we're having a huge sale that's on from now until midnight, Monday, 27th of November, 2023. So if you haven't checked it out yet, you want to, because there are many courses that are currently available at special prices, some up to, well, many up to 40% off. Now, we don't hold frequent sales, so this is something you want to have a look at. And you can check out the courses that are on um, this, these special prices at writercentercomau slash sale. That's writercenter.com.au/ slash sale. Now, if there's a course that you've always wanted to do, you can purchase it now and do it at your leisure and you have access for 12 months. So even if you're not ready right now to get started or get stuck into it, you can get it now at the special price and just start whenever you're ready. Some of the courses include... Uh, Courses like Romance Writing, which is such an incredible insight into the romance writing industry and genre, Um, Laugh Out Loud, which was created by the wonderful middle grade author Tim Harris, and that's all about writing humour for kids. There's also the very popular Your Author website, which tells you step-by-step all the things that you need to know and understand for your own author website. And yes, you should start thinking about it even before you're an author, and that is created by the incredible Michelle Barraclough. There's also Presenting to Kids, which is created by none other than the very vivacious, gregarious, and energetic and enthusiastic uh, author Nat Amor. Um, And that will tell you everything you need to know about how to present to kids, if that's something that's on your radar um, coming up. There's also the wonderful, wonderful course, Short Story Essentials by Kathy Tasker. And the great thing about Short Story Essentials is that even if you have no, you don't have any ideas, if you follow the steps in Short Story Essentials in this course, you will end up with a short story of about two and a half thousand words by the end. So it's pretty good. And of course, there is um, Candace Fox's brilliant course, Anatomy of a Crime: How to Write About Murder. I mean, this woman knows what she's talking about. She's a fantastic. Australian author who has um, had number one bestsellers, New York Times bestsellers. She's co-written several books with the incredible James Patterson. She knows a thing or two about writing crime. And the lovely Leslie Gibbs's course, Writing Chapter Books for Six to Nine-Year-Olds. Look, I'm. this is only the tip of the iceberg. There are a lot of other courses that are also available at their own special prices, most up to 40% off. So I can't go into all of them right now. You'll have to check them out if you're interested. Um, remember, this only goes till midnight on Monday, the 27th of October, 2023, and then it is back to its normal price. So f- find out more at writerscenter.com.au/ slash sale. That's au slash sale. All right, let's welcome back Nat Newman, who is here with us to give us our writing tip this week. What have you been up to, Nat?
1: Oh, what haven't I been up to, Valerie? Can
0: (laughs) you believe it's almost the end of the year? I really, I can't.
1: I prefer not to think about it, actually. Um, Mm La, 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 la. Got my hands over my eyes and my ears and I'm pretending (laughs) that it's not nearly the end of the year.
0: (laughs) Um, Have you already planned next year? Uh, oh my God. No. Some people say, some people say, and I'm not of this school of thought, even though it does make it's logical, that if you're planning, if it's already past October and you're hmm. only starting to plan the next year, you're staffed. <laughs> <Yeah>. Of course. <laughs> I never plan by October. Um oh. Yeah, I think that's a really, really overly organised, enthusiastic people. But, you know, by November, a lot of people are starting to think about their projects for 2024. Have you already thought of your projects for 2024?
1: Oh, my God, I've got so many projects that are still going. I don't know if I've got time for any more. But I am actually, having said that, (laughs) to my embarrassment, I actually already have some plans for
0: 2025, so... (laughs) oh my goodness okay (laughs) yeah
1: because well there was um, expressions of interest for plays for one of the local theatre companies here in Newcastle um, that are looking for uh, directors and ideas for plays put on in 2025 because obviously they need to start preparing that next year so I'm putting I'm putting together a proposal for that at the moment so yeah
0: oh what kind of play Uh,
1: actually it's a um, it's a collection of kind of Shakespearean plays but all from a women's point of view. Uh, So, like, uh, so just like Ophelia and Lady Macbeth um, and stuff like that. So kind of uh, it's a collection of of short plays that are interconnected.
0: But you're reimagining the Shakespeare story.
1: Yeah, from a woman's point of view. Yeah, exactly. All of the stories have been <sighs> rewritten. Um, Kind of like, you know how Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? I don't know if you have to read that play. For... Love <laughs> that play.
0: <laughs> Love that play. And
1: the movie, the movie was all right too. That was um, that was Gary Oldman and Tim Roth's first big movie, I think. Um, oh, I must
0: go look it up. Okay, oh, okay, but I loved that play.
1: Yeah, and you know how that's told from like two minor characters. And so these are all sort of interconnected plays that are told from the um, – from the characters of the women in some of Shakespeare's plays.
0: Oh, I love that. So mm-hmm. um, for those who don't know, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead is by, I think, Tom Stoppard. Yep, Tom Stoppard. Uh, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, as um, Nat mentioned, are a couple of characters in, is it Hamlet or Macbeth? Yep. Hamlet. Hamlet. Hamlet um but they are minor characters and um this play rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead uh yeah they're kind of strange little story and it's extraordinary isn't it
1: yeah it's amazing I, I saw it many years ago i think when i was still in high school um at the belvoir i think
0: oh wow um
1: and it was a couple of famous aussie actors whose names i cannot remember now but uh yeah that would have been 90 the late 90s sometime
0: right right yeah, i think i saw yeah. it i can't remember when I, I saw it at the opera house
1: oh amazing
0: yeah, I mean uh, Josh Kwong Tart was in it. Oh right, you know, do you know him? Is is he related to
1: Kwong um, Tart, the famous?
0: Chinese yeah, one of the migrant. descendants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that led me because I thought he was so fantastic in it. In it, I um, that made me research him, which is how I discovered Kwong Tart, who owned the tea rooms at Queen Victoria Building, and yeah, was, right. Uh, <laughs> pioneer in Australia. So anyway, yeah, that, that was a rabbit hole. Okay. Sorry. We've, we've really, <laughs> we really started at Tom Stoppard and yeah. <laughs> gone on a tangent here. What's your writing tip this week?
1: I have no idea. What's my writing tip? Oh, elevated pitches. That's what it is. Um, elevated pitches. So an elevated pitch is the idea of summarizing your story, whether it's a novel or a film, for example, if you write films um, in a really short, succinct couple of sentences the idea is that you can mm-hmm. describe your story uh in the time it takes to have an elevator ride now the reason mm-hmm. this one came up Valerie is because one of our students very very keen um actually got in the lift uh <laughs> and <laughs> went to the 17th floor to time how long an elevator pitch was no way she did <laughs> yeah. and it was 27 seconds <laughs> so yeah 27 seconds it's not a long time to um Surely it depends yeah. on how tall the building is. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're only going one floor, I'm I'm afraid you don't have very long to explain your story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, my yeah.
0: God. Um, okay. So, but uh, that's a really good average, 27 seconds, because we oh. usually say that an elevator pitch is about 30 seconds. So I yeah. think that works really well. And I think that people need to practice it as in actually time themselves, because sometimes people are talking for 20 minutes and they're still talking. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I, I have to say, I need to stop you there because I still yeah. don't understand what the story's about. Yeah,
1: exactly, because I think sometimes people mistake um, the events of the plot for the story, which isn't, you know, mm. like, yeah, oh, I went to the beach and then I saw a whale and then I built a sandcastle and then, I, no, nobody cares. Like, what is the story about? <laughs> like, what, yeah. what is the actual yeah. um, sort of succinct story in a couple of sentences? So, yeah, I think we say, like, um 100 words, 30 seconds, and you're right, actually practice saying it out loud, you know, Mm. because I think that's something, I mean, we say that with all writing, you should um, always read your writing out loud, but definitely with an elevator pitch, actually practice saying it out loud so that when somebody says to you, oh, you're writing a novel, what's it about?
0: (laughs) You can just say it in, you know, the three sentences that matter. Because what you want them to say is say, oh, tell me more. Mm-hmm. But if you keep rabbiting on, they're more likely to say, oh, I'm just going to go get a drink or yeah. something. Yes. Yeah. yeah, if, just going to find the lady's bathroom.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Whereas what you want them to do is to say, oh, can I buy you a drink and find out more about your story?
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Have you had to use or formulate an elevator pitch lately? Uh, well, I did.
1: I did put together one for the novel that I'm currently editing. Mm-hmm. Um, which is called Just
0: Harry. Editing as in you're editing for someone else or you no, are editing, editing your own moment. novel. At the moment, yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, So it's a YA novel, yeah. Yes. And this is my pitch. Hit me. <clears throat> I'll hit you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fran's teenager, Harry Kirk, is happy just being Harry, but as the end of school approaches, he needs to decide what sort of man he wants to be. What if being Harry just isn't enough?
0: Oh, I'm intrigued. Yeah. I'd want to know more. Yeah. For sure. I like it. I like it. All right. That's your elevator pitch. Um, that So, is. yeah, if you're thinking about an elevator pitch for your story, uh, do write it, keep it around 30 seconds and make sure you practice it so that it actually is around 30 seconds and not three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Nat. Thanks, Valerie. Let's move on to our competition this week. I'm so excited by this. I have three copies of The Seven by Chris Hammer to give away. Right, Chris is one of my favorite authors, and The Seven is the latest thriller from Chris. He is an acclaimed and award-winning author of international bestsellers Scrublands and The Tilt. And if you have Stan... Scrublands, the television series starring Luke Arnold and a whole host of you know fantastic Australian actors, including Alison White and, and so on, um, has, has just started uh, on Stan. I've only watched episode one so far, um, but I am definitely going to be watching the rest. Episode one has already got me hooked. Here's the blurb to The Seven. Yuanda seven founding families have lauded it over their district for a century, growing ever more rich and powerful. But now, in startling circumstances, one of their own is found dead in a ditch, and homicide detectives Ivan Luchich and Nell Buchanan are sent to investigate. Could the murder be connected to the execution of the victim's friend 30 years ago, another member of the Seven, or even to the long-forgotten story of a servant girl on the brink of the Great War? What are the secrets the Seven are so desperate to keep hidden? With the killer still on the loose and events spiralling out of control, the closer Ivan and Nell get to discovering the truth, the more dangerous their investigation becomes. Can they crack the case before more people die? All right, so I have three copies of The Seven by Chris Hammer to give away. And all you need to do is go to writerscentercomau slash win and follow the instructions. Entries close on the 27th of November, 2023. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? I hope you are, because here it is, Haruspicy. That's H-A-R-U-S-P-I-C-Y, Haruspicy. Now, this is a bit gruesome, but could be good for anyone writing historical fiction or fantasy. So, in ancient Rome, Haruspicy was a form of divination where the entrails of sacrificed animals were inspected especially the livers of sheep and poultry and someone who practices herispicy is a haruspex, which is also the name of a character in warhammer apparently and there you go herispicy and that was the word of the week and now here's some information of one of our popular courses at the Australian Writers' Centre, Creative Nonfiction. And this course is one of the ones that's available at the very special price during our sale until the 27th of November. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Creative Nonfiction, is your essential guide to crafting a true story into a compelling, page-turning book. Creative nonfiction is one of the most popular genres in publishing right now, and it's clear to see why people love a good story. And if it's based on true events, they're even more invested in it. Perhaps you want to explore true crime, history or literary journalism. Maybe you have a great idea for a memoir or armchair travel book. It doesn't matter what subject you're passionate about, this course provides you with a blueprint on everything you need to know, from how to structure your story and bring its real characters to life, to the kind of research you need to do and the techniques that will drive your narrative to a powerful climax. With over 10 hours of lessons and plenty of practical exercises to complete, you'll discover how to weave your true story into a truly great read. This powerful course removes the guesswork and breaks down the process step by step so you can approach your writing project with confidence. And because it's one of our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash nonfiction That's writerscentre.com.au slash nonfiction Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Rob Drummond has written the fabulous book, you All Talk, Why We Are What We Speak, which explores how the way we speak has evolved and what that tells us about our identity or how other people perceive us and how we might perceive other people. Rob is a linguist and a professor of sociolinguistics at Manchester Metropolitan University, where he researches and teaches about the relationship between how we speak and who we are. He recently completed a large project exploring the accents and dialects of Greater Manchester, touring the region in his accent van. Yes, an actual van. (laughs) He appears regularly on radio and TV talking about language-related issues and spent some time as resident linguist on BBC Radio 3's The Verb, as well as appearing on the BBC Breakfast Sofa. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rob. Well, thanks for having me. I absolutely loved your book, Your All Talk, Why We Are What We Speak. Now, I've always had a fascination with the way people talk and accents, so I devoured it. Uh, For those people who haven't got their hands on a copy yet, can you tell us what it's about?
2: Yeah, it's really about the relationship between uh, language, spoken language and identity or how we speak and who we are. So it looks at kind of the history of accents, why we have so many different ways of speaking, um, you know, in the UK, but also in Australia and the US. Um, And then how those how those different ways of speaking link to all those different parts of ourselves, you know, how they relate to our gender, to our social class, to our race and ethnicity, our age, our sexuality, all of those things. And so it really looks at that that really important role of spoken language in in creating and and negotiating uh, our, our identities in in the social world.
0: So, why did you want to write this book, and how did you become interested in this subject?
2: So, I've uh, I've always wanted. So, I'm I'm a, I'm an academic. So, I write. Um, I do a lot of research into spoken language, um, and uh, and obviously, I write a lot of academic things. And I've always wanted to write a a, a book aimed at a, a non-academic audience, as in, so a non-specialist audience, because so I, I do a lot of public talks I do a lot of you know work with schools and colleges and just general sort of public things and a bit of media around spoken language and I really enjoy that side of things I really enjoy explaining things in a kind of a, a clearer or what I think is a clearer way so I've always wanted to write this book and then it just kind of things kind of came together and it was a good time to do it but my own interest comes from it was quite a long time ago when I was uh I was I used to teach, I I used to be an English language teacher. I used to teach English as a foreign language. And I was teaching at the time in Manchester in the UK. And I had students from all all over the world and teaching them English. Uh, And I noticed that some of the students started to acquire more of a Manchester accent in their English than others. And I kind of thought that was that was quite interesting. And And I looked into that a bit more. And then that eventually became my PhD, really, which was looking at whether Polish people specifically in Manchester acquired or didn't acquire a Manchester accent in their English. And I tied that to issues of identity um, and and sense of kind of belonging and and things like that. And so from, from that point on, all of the research I've done in some way has been related to spoken language and identity. And as I've gone along, the identity aspect has taken more and more of a a prominent role. Um, And, and in the meantime, doing a lot of work with accent prejudice, um, looking at the way people are judged negatively due to the way they speak. And so all of those things, I thought, well, I've got enough information now. I give talks on enough subjects to put this all into a book. And hopefully people like it. And I I think people do because it's a subject that everybody has something to say about. So whenever I whenever I give a talk, whenever I'm, you know, I don't know, on the radio talking about it, somebody will always contact me afterwards or come up to me afterwards or contact me afterwards. Just even just to give me their story, their accent story. Everyone, everyone has something to say.
0: And I bet so many people will tell you their pet peeve.
2: Uh, yeah, that I get that a lot. So this this is another interesting area. I do get that, and and I'm 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 sometimes not the right person to talk to about pet, pet peeves. I'm interested in people's pet peeves. I'm interested in, I'm interested in the fact they have them, and I'm interested in why they have them, and I'm interested in what they are, but I almost never agree with them um, because uh, I certainly come from this sort of attitude that you know. Th- th- or, language varies and language will always vary and um if we're talking about accent peeves the, you know that I, I have no time for them really again I'm interested but all accents are equal and if we get into um kind of grammar uh peeves then which is a whole different book uh, then uh yeah then I'm kind of interested but again they're, they're mainly based on arbitrary conventions from the past but yeah you know
0: Yes yeah, so you're very um egalitarian and inclusive in your attitude to accents um and as you mentioned there is uh, a lot of the a lot of people's identity is defined by their accent or other people define them by <laughs> when they hear their accent but before we get onto that I'd love to just touch on and I know we haven't got long, but you know, there's probably entire university degrees on it, but I'd love to touch on the variations of accent. And you do touch on the fact that a lot of it does, you know, just come from the different people you are exposed to, and that there are certain areas in England or wherever that, you know, reflect Danish words or or, or whatever. Um, uh, Apart from the people who are around us, what are uh, some of the other key factors that change accents or make accents differ?
2: Okay, so, yeah, that's a good question. It's, I mean, yeah, in the past it was, the fact that we have so many accents is really because there were just so many different groups of people living in a particular place. So in the UK, especially, lots of different groups of people over the years, you know, going right back to, you know, kind of seven, you know, well, 449 AD, um, you know, and looking at all these different groups. And of course, language will always develop. That's the interesting thing. Spoken language will always change. It naturally changes. Every natural language does over time, changes over time. But when you have people in different areas um, using the same language, of course it will develop in different ways in those areas. If they're not, If they're not communicating with each other that much, which of course in the past, we didn't so much, people were sort of in their separate areas. Um, and even in a country as small as the UK, there wasn't much sort of movement between those areas. Sometimes the language was free to develop. But then nowadays, of course, we are we do travel and we are influenced by the same things and we have the same media and we have the same kind of, you know, we, we listen to the same things, the same music and the same broadcasts and so on. So now I think what's interesting is we still have different accents. Um and this comes mainly down again to the issue of identity. The way we speak is our way of saying, you know, I belong to this group, uh, I'm one of these people, and I don't belong to that group. Even that might be a, a regional group. Uh, and if people who, you know, certainly in, in the UK, but also in, in a lot of other places, people will be very aware of, you know, even just a neighboring town or a neighboring city. If there's some kind of sense of regional pride or, or, or regional, even regional hostility, um then there's a, there's a sense of well i i speak like one of this group and they'll they'll be they'll be aware of of speech features even if they don't know the details they'll be aware that these people speak differently and they'll make sure they don't speak the same or they'll they'll kind of um uh exaggerate those differences sometimes in their own speech so it's a really useful tool in that sense likewise it's an, it's also a tool for pe- bringing people together to sort of be speaking in the same way as other people to somebody you you want to kind of bond with or you you like in some way so i think that's interesting um and of course we are influenced by you know by media people often talk about whether english is becoming more american and that would go for the uk and australia whether it's being americanized in some way and it, it, it kind of it is in some ways but not at all in in the way that in extreme way people have been saying that for a long time people have been saying that since you know the 1980s when we had. You know, lots of American television, uh, and you know the thought that kind of half an hour or so of watching Dallas or Dynasty a week was going to suddenly influence um, everyone's speech. You know, it it just doesn't work like that. Think of we have so much input from people around us, so it's all people is the main thing. People, it's it's people that's who influences us. Um, I think things are slightly different now with so much media and social media, and and we have young people especially have so much exposure to all different forms of, of media. And I think that's having an effect, not necessarily an Americanization effect, but even a kind of an online language effect that things are changing more quickly. So I say language has always changed, but maybe things are changing a bit more quickly than they used to. Um, but I think at the heart of it, it's, it's people. It's people that change language and, uh, and that's what's important.
0: So one of the, I mean, you 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 cover this um in your book, but maybe you could uh explain this to um the audience. Um, there's there are situations where, for example, I used to work in a newsroom, right? One of the 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 major newsrooms in Australia, um, television newsroom, and um the the key you know, six o'clock nightly news rate reader was a woman who was on the television every night and she spoke as you kind of imagine a newsreader would speak. Yeah. But then she was in the newsroom and you know, she'd talk like this to to you know the cameraman and she'd say, oh did he really kill that guy? Are we gonna run that story? But then when she got on air, it was a completely different, a completely different person. So um what's your explanation for that?
2: Yeah, I love that. I love that when that happens. I love that when that happens in a really extreme way. I think it's fascinating. So we kind of call that style shifting. Some people call it code switching. Um, it's, a, it's a similar thing. I think technically I go along the lines of style shifting is when we're, we're shifting the way we speak within the same language. And I would call code switching when we're switching between languages, which is, you know again, what a lot of people naturally do in all sorts of situations. But so that, ex- that situation of style shifting I think we all do it. I think we all do it to a certain extent, and what's interesting is to see what that extent is in different people. And I would say that it's almost always kind of well, no, it's it's uh, yeah, usually styling in a sense upwards. So so in that example, it would be that she sees her news reading voice as being more kind of sophisticated or more somehow more proper, more correct, more formal. For the situation and if she read the news in her in her nat- more natural voice you know i guess she's thinking she would get criticism or somebody's told her that you know that's not the kind of right kind of voice to use um so it's usually that way it can be the other way if we if people have maybe a voice that's naturally seen as quite a bit posh for certain situations um a bit formal then they might kind of tone it down if they're in a situation where they don't want to stand out too much either way. It's style shifting, and and it and it really is. It's 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 interesting because it is to do with. I would say in this case, it's probably to do with social class. Um, could always also be to do with race and ethnicity. Could be to do, to do with sexuality. It's all of these things where, you know, there's some aspect. So that that more natural way of speaking will tell people something about that person that, for whatever reason, probably not her or indirectly through her she doesn't think is appropriate or let's say society has decided it's not appropriate for that aspect to come out we need our news readers to be a, a particular you know a, have a particular style not just in speech but everything that speech implies to be kind of you know educated and 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 quite kind of proper and quite formal so it, i think it's just fascinating and like i say i think we all do it but maybe you know certainly to different different degrees and I think the people who who do it the least are probably the people who naturally speak in a way that matches whatever the standard is deemed to be in any particular situation mm. and they they kind of they move the least because they feel the least need to because society is geared towards uh towards them and I say them I'm speaking as somebody to th- that who that relates to I don't I don't I do change the way I speak but I don't have to change the way I speak as much as some people or I don't feel the need to because my accent purely by chance happens to match the standard variety or you know this kind of what's perceived as a standard variety in mm. in England anyway.
0: Um I had to I had a giggle uh in your book when you referred to um the intonation pattern that when when someone's voice Uh, someone's voice pitch rises at the end of a statement um, also known as up talk or high rising terminal. I didn't know that one. And um, you say that uh, this is a speech phenomenon that is often associated with young, particularly American women, although you hear it in the UK too. And it is extremely common in Australia. (laughs) In fact, you might see it referred to as Australian questioning intonation. Can you, in case I'm sure all listeners know what I'm referring to, but perhaps you can give us a demonstration, but also tell us why is it so common in australia cuz it is
2: <laughs> yeah well that's a that's a very good question so yeah it is that thing when you go when you just it's it's a statement but you go up at the end of a sentence and so it can sound like you're not quite finished what you're saying and and you know when people use that it's is the reason it's it became it came became a really big thing in the uk and got the kind of australian questioning intonation when uh in what the 19 19- late 80s 90s when britain was obsessed with neighbors the tv program so we're blaming and, and became, <laughs> yeah exactly and it became a really big thing you know and there were problems, there were worries that i think it even had its time the time it was shown on tv was changed because kids were kind of missing school um to watch it so i think it was on i think it was on twice a day uh yeah, eventually they had to put one at lunchtime and one at kind of early evening, just so that the c- kids wouldn't, they repeated it so the kids wouldn't uh, miss, miss school. Um, and, and so that was, it became, you know, this thing about Australian questioning intonation, And of course it is, it is very, you know, it is a, a feature of Australian English. And I know that when I, so I spent a bit of time in Australia when I'd um, finished university, I spent about nine months there. And when I came back, I know that some of my friends were like, "Why? Why are you speaking like that?" And I had kind of, I was using it a little bit, and um, and it, so it really stands out. And like with anything, once somebody's noticed something, they, you just hear it all the time, and uh, and so you know, I'm skirting around the question of why because I I don't know. And I remember there's a there's a really there was I I contributed to a – years ago to something on on the kind of bbc news website about this and they asked various people why it was and i and it's still i'm sure it's still on there if you kind of if you kind of search for for bbc you know up talk or whatever um like it was quite a few years ago and and i think the, the consensus was they asked all these different linguists and basically nobody nobody knew nobody agreed we had there were lots of different kind of ideas but nobody really knows it's that's often the case with with um, with language is that th- there are these features and we can track the features and we know how they spread and we know we can identify them with different areas but like I say natural language naturally changes so nobody quite knows how things change um, or why things change we just know they do and that's one of those features so it'll be you know some some kind of natural feature from the influences Australia Australian English had from from its kind of from the very beginnings of where what the accents that the people the British people that came over originally had and then of course mixing with all the different influences of all the different languages that are already there and so that kind of combination brings up particular features and then I would say that those particular features also then become you know almost kind of emblematic of a of a, a of, of a way of speaking and so Again, they might be emphasised. It might be that when an Australian comes to to London, and they're proud of being Australian, and those those sound, those features that make them Australian will be emphasised, will be exaggerated in order to kind of demonstrate their Australianness. And so, and, you know, and it's also just it's.
0: It's potentially a bit regional as well, because it's, you know, some states would do it more than others. But as you say, uh language is continually evolving. Can you uh give us some insight into what the great vowel shift was? So I'm saying vowel as in V-O-W-E-L. Um, what was the great vowel shift?
2: Yeah, so that was a thing that happened in the in, in England, um, you know, kind of 15th, 16th centuries. Where it was just that the, the way we pronounce vowels, the way people pronounce vowels just changed. There was a a, a you know it kind of it, it, it's look, people can look back and and work out kind of where it started, which vowel sort of sort of changed. but once one vowel shifts, once vowel one vowel, literally people were pronouncing it in a different way and it obviously didn't happen overnight. but particular things, you know, so particular words gradually changed in the way they were pronounced. But as those pronounced, that kind of forced another vowel to change because vowels in any language have to be quite separate from one another, as in, you know, if they start sounding the same, then words will sound the same. So as one vowel changes its pronunciation, so does another one. And, and it's often, this was kind of, you know, from a historical linguistics perspective, this was seen as a time when the whole system changed which is really interesting because that's you know that plays a big part in why we have such an unusual spelling system in english because of course you know written language is always a representation of spoken language spoken language comes first and, and people learn you know acquire writing skills and learn to write later uh, you know historically as well as in an individual's life and so when english was first written down it would have been spelt to reflect whatever however English was pronounced at the time and of course there were lots like of different varieties of English as well. Yeah exactly yeah the letters must have represented you know um, uh, yeah how people were pronouncing things and of course then as the spoken language shifts the the written language stays the same we don't we haven't changed our spelling system for you know since forever really minor minor changes so what happens is as as things change so the, the great vowel shift was a big change over it took you know a couple hundred years to to happen but things also you know continue to change but the spelling stays the same so we end up with all of these unusual spellings if you think about it anyone learning English will know this uh, learn English as a second language um, will know that it's it's really kind of it's a real mismatch and that's in part to again because of English's long sort of history and Quite a long history of being written down as well, um, but yeah, this this big shift that happened, and then all the other changes that happened too. So it's a, yeah, it's a fascinating thing, I think.
0: So we, there were obviously um, shifts in the way people pronounced vowels in America because they they say things quite differently. But I thought one of the things that was interesting that you pointed out was they did not lose the word r. In the way kind of Australians and American uh, and British people did, yeah. because you know they really emphasise it with car and order and murder yeah.
2: and
0: stuff like that. Do you, is there an explanation for that?
2: Yeah, that that's a, yeah that's an interesting one. So that you know because we still have it a bit in so this is called roticity. So it's this idea of pronouncing yes. the R sound in words like car and, and order, as you say, and it's almost almost disappeared from english english as in english in england there's a little bit in the northwest of england and a little bit in the southwest of england scottish accents still have it and of course almost all american accents have it and australian accents don't have it and this will be so the, what what would have happened was when when english people went over to people from england went over to what became the united states the england 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 would have been rhotic so those speakers you know it was it was a thing that was uh, across England, that was the kind of original, again, because there's, it's in the spelling, we know that roticity was around, because otherwise, why would there need to be these Rs in words? Um, you know, that's kind of one, one bit of evidence. So, England, English in England was rhotic, people did pronounce the Rs, and then it's gradually died away. But when people went over to what became the States, then they were rhotic speakers, And so there, but then of course, as as always happens, languages develop in their own ways. So the English in the United States developed in its own way and and it kept the roticity. Meanwhile, the English in England developed in its own way and it happened to lose the roticity. Again, nobody really knows why these things happen, but we can just track them. And so then that became the norm for the United States and this became the norm in England. Meanwhile, in Australia, The people, the English people who first went to Australia, they weren't rotic. They were mainly from kind of what originally kind of London and the southeast of England was a big, uh, a big influence. So they didn't have roticity. So therefore, English in Australia never had that kind of rotic history anyway. So that's how that's how that spread. And it's and it's become a really kind of big marker of American English as opposed to English or Australian English now, that that's a really kind of prominent feature, like I say, of most accents, it, most American accents. Like I say, it's, it's almost died out in England, but there is just a, a little bit left, but that that will go. We, I did another bit of research with some colleagues and and we were tracking roticity in an area in the north of England. And, and you can, because you can track this by listening to older speakers and, and then listening to younger speakers, of course, and um, it's, it's dying out. It, it's it's on its way out in
0: England. So this research that you do, you have this thing called an accent van. What is that?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was really good fun. That was a, a big project I did with some some colleagues here in in Greater Manchester, and it was just a way of. Um,
0: What's an, know, actual an actual van? van?
2: It was an actual van. It was a. It was a, Yeah, it was a really nice <laughs> a
0: vehicle. Van. A
2: really, <laughs> yeah, a really nice, uh, sleek black van. Um, we'll all we'll kind of, you know. Branded uh, uh, with uh, called the Accent Van. and um, yeah, we drove around, uh, and it was like a it's like a mobile sort of recording studio inside, and so we'd we drive around and ask people to to get in and talk about the way they speak. So so they get in, and we we aren't in there with them; they're just faced with a with a camera and a and a voice recorder and a tablet, and uh, and they get asked questions about the way they speak and what it means to them, and it's just a nice little sort of private space to, to think about things. And so yeah, it was a really nice way of doing research. So we ended up with loads of stories about just about the way people speak and, and what, it, what it means to them and how they feel about it and how how they might be perceived by other people. And it was just a nice and it's a, it's so much better than you know traditionally these kind of, this kind of research is done by well you know bringing people into the university or or you know meeting them somewhere else. But this was just a, a novel, a novel way of doing it, and it, 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 yeah, it worked really well. It was nice.
0: It's like you're a 21st century Henry Higgins hipster <laughs> yeah. style.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's
0: it. That's it. Um, <laughs> eye roll. Yeah, that's it.
2: <laughs> no, it is. No, it is. It is. I like. It. I like that. I like that comparison. I, I can. I can. You know. I, I want to do more. I'm planning another big one.
0: So, what were some of the key findings from that research?
2: So that was just that was in a particular area. So that was in 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 Greater Manchester in the northwest of England. So you've got Manchester in the middle, and then it's surrounded by uh, different kind of areas and um, uh, different boroughs. And uh, and I mean the, the 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 aim was to see if people do speak differently across the different boroughs, or if there was a shared Greater Manchester identity. And um, and I and I think that the main thing was just we found. A lot of differences, but also a real kind of pride in in the way people speak, which is which was good to see because we did have some stories of of people facing prejudice due to the way they speak and feeling forced to change the way they speak. But that was happening. We, we were getting that more from older speakers than younger speakers, which was kind of a good sign um, because you know we, I think there's a general feeling that these kind of these these kind of prejudices and attitudes, they certainly haven't disappeared, but they're gradually being challenged and gradually kind of hopefully on their way out. It's a long time, they'll be a long time away, but they are lessening in some ways. And so we had a lot of those kind of stories, um, but it was also, in a lot of ways, it was just a a kind of celebration of language diversity, uh, even within English, um, to show that, you know, people do speak in different ways and this is a good thing and it should be kind of cherished and enjoyed rather than sort of um, kind of attacked or stigmatised.
0: How do you, as you, you know, track language, as it changes over time, how do you know or how do you deduce how they spoke in, you know, the year 300 or whatever?
2: Yeah, now this is difficult. Um, the What you can do mainly is going that far back is very difficult um but uh, and it's not it's not my area it's not an area that i know that i've researched so i'm relying on the research of other people for this kind of thing but i do know that once you certainly once you've got writing involved that's a really good indication because again it's back to this idea that written language it must be a representation of spoken language that's all it is what's well, that all it is i mean that's where it comes from so Once you start comparing written text, you can see. Well, hold on. The the way things are written down, that means they must have pronounced things in this way. Um, You know, there's no way that somebody writing something uh, in the early days would suddenly decide, okay, we need a silent letter here. Let's spell let's spell knight as in you know a knight in shining armor. Let's spell that with a K. There's just no there's no reason Or, or the word knight as in you know, nighttime. Let's spell that with a G and an H. Why would you come up to up with that unless there was something in the pronunciation which made that? So, so from there we know that words like night and knee, that K can't have been silent. There must have that must have been pronounced at some point. And then, of course, you can compare that with languages that we know uh, have, where English has its roots, like in kind of you know Anglo-Saxon. It's, it's English is a What's called a Germanic language, so it's related to to those kind of um, languages from 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 Germany, from modern day Germany. So you can start to see comparisons. So people build up a picture from there, and like with anything, with any kind of history, uh, there's there's kind of evidence and a, a bit of kind of a bit of guesswork, a bit of educated guesswork, and a bit a few kind of you know theorists tested out. Does we think this is what happened, and then you get more evidence, okay, okay maybe it changes slightly, but it's just building the pieces together from from that.
0: Um, You tell this story of uh, a tweet by Lord Digby Jones during the Olympics, which got a lot of attention and a lot of flack. And he said, enough, I can't stand it anymore. Alex Scott, who is... uh, commentator uh, spoils a good presentational job on the BBC Olympics team with her very noticeable inability to pronounce her G's at the end of a word. Competitors are not taking part, Alex, in the fencing, rowing, boxing, kayaking, weightlifting and swimming. (laughs) And then he goes on to you know say mention some other people who should also have elocution lessons yeah. so that is a really interesting thing the gs because there is you know rowan and then there's rowing and then there's rowing are they symptomatic or are they reflective of particular socioeconomic um groups or demographics or or what
2: yeah d- definitely that's a good it's a good example of something that's seen as um it's 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 it's, it's a class based thing mainly um and it's seen as or it can be seen as kind of lazy lazy speech so people criticize other people saying just speak properly it's it's lazy it's lazy speech but it's not it's just another pronunciation of a particular word but that pronunciation is more associated um with kind of you know it has kind of class-based Relationships. So we're saying lower down the social scale, it's more likely to happen. In the same way, certainly in British English, of of pronouncing T sounds with what's called a glottal stop. So when, when you know, at extreme, when kind of when matter becomes matter, um, or or batter becomes batter. And I was listening to some cricket commentators again, it's a few years ago, uh, and uh, women because it's often women. You get criticized more and and she i remember she pronounced it, she she one of them said better and there was all sorts of you know commotion on on uh, on twitter and whatever so yeah it is it is a it is a class-based thing um and it's it's this kind of picking up on these little features and feeling the need to criticize people that you know i it's really just a way of criticizing them for something else it's it's a you know the thought that somebody could could really, you know. Sometimes people say oh, we can't understand the speaker. Why they, they keep dropping these G's and pronouncing T's? We can't. We can't understand. Of course, people can understand them. You know. Of course, he knows exactly what is being said, but and there's also no logical reason why somebody wouldn't like it. There's, you know, the, it's not like they're producing some weird sound they haven't heard before. They're just using a sound that we use in other words, but they're using it in this word, and you know i think when anyone when anyone criticizes language it's it's always about more than language there's always something something else going on not always necessarily to do with this person uh but you know the fact that in this case it was a kind of a woman a woman of color a woman of color from a working class background the fact that it was her and of course you know it's it's still even in 2023 um uh having having women you know with prominent positions in sports coverage and Alex Scott's a footballer as well which you know she's a retired footballer which again is it's, you know again women come in for more criticism than men and, and and it's because they're in a position that was routinely historically more dominated by men so they're still kind of fighting for their way in there and so people are just using anything anything they can sometimes it might be that way the way they're dressed it might be that you know the way that they're doing their job or it might be something as completely arbitrary as as the way they pronounce particular words which if we think about it is a really it's a really crazy thing to get upset about certainly to take then take the time to express your dislike about you know the the thought somebody's got the time to to think she's really annoying me and I'm going to get my phone out. I'm going to write (laughs) to share how annoyed I am, the way she's pronouncing a particular word to to what, to what ends, to what, you know, it's a really strange thing once you think about it.
0: And you well, are right yeah. about it, it's probably uh, the spotlight. Well, a more attention is placed on women in certain positions because you you uh, rightly give the example of Julia Gillard, ex-Australian Prime Minister, whose accent is, well, just too Australian for some, which was a sentiment by by many people. Um, one of the things that I loved in your uh, book was you mentioned mentioned. mentioned um, there's often surveys of you know the world the the 10 worst accents or and and there's some that often come out on top and um (laughs) you're right although having said that when I recently saw a survey that asked which famous Chris's accent makes him the most attractive followed by a bar chart labeled with the faces of actors Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth and Chris Pratt I did have to quietly wonder what I was doing with my life. So on that then, what is yeah. the next bit of research? What are you delving into next? Maybe with your accent van or with whatever it is that you're, you're doing next. What's the big next sort of thing that you want to dis- discover or investigate?
2: I think the, ne- the next thing I'm planning on doing, and we have to the way um, research works, is that we kind of apply for funding. And uh, and and you know get kind of grants to do useful kind of research. So myself and a colleague, we've applied for some funding to do a a bigger project on accent prejudice. I think this is you know what we call accentism, and so that's that. Hopefully, that will be the next the next big thing if that comes through. Um, and I think that'll be really, I think that'll be really useful. I think there's a lot there's a lot more to be done. Obviously, there's a lot more to be done there, and the more we understand about how it works and why people have those attitudes, why people have those prejudices, um, and uh, and the more we can draw attention to it, so hopefully we can kind of challenge those sorts of prejudices. And I, and I don't want to with all of these things. I never want to. People often think, oh, you know, can't it's such a killjoy telling people we can't. <laughs> it, people can have preferences, and I, I you know, and I think that's totally normal. And I think anyone who's we have preferences about all sorts of things, and 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 anyone who's interested in language. You know, they'll have their preference they'll have, they'll, have the, they'll like particular voices or they'll like particular accents or even they'll like particular words or, or phrases, all of these things and that's good, that's nice. It's just when those preferences kind of tip over into being judgments I think that's that's where there's an issue. So if we start to say you say I like that person's voice but if if that then means we treat that person in a more preferential way than that person whose voice we don't really like then obviously that's an issue and it happens a lot. So, so I'm not at all saying, you know, we should, we should just, we should just be blah, everyone, you know, everything is equal in terms of speech. Not that it's nice to have, it's nice to, you know, I I have some voices, I don't have favourite accents, but there are some voices, I hear a voice, that's a really lovely voice. Um, And that's good, that's fine. But, uh, you know, it's when we judge people. So, yeah, I think that's the next big thing. I'd love to do some some proper work on uh, accent prejudice.
0: That's going to be so interesting, accent prejudice. I love it. So the book is such a great read, and I learned so much. I know people will really enjoy it. Um, I'd just like to end with what what was your goal with the
2: book? Uh, to just to get people thinking. I think to it's like I say, it's a subject where whenever I've spoken about it, some at the end somebody will come and give me their their story. Or they'll think, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way. Or they'll challenge something. They'll say, oh, you know, you say that, but, you know, I hate this accent and this is why. And um and I think it's it it so it's what it's one thing. A lot of the stuff we do within academia, you know, will write it's so neat it's so kind of niche. It's so and that's the way we build knowledge and that's absolutely fine. But I'm more interested in the stuff that it, it kind of sharing that and getting people thinking. And so it was really just to get people make people more aware of how important accents are or spoken languages and just get people thinking about what it means to them and hopefully make people reflect on if they are judging other people to think hold on is that is that really fair is that a really is that a thing I should be doing
0: fantastic i love it your all talk why we are what we speak by rob drummond thank you so much for your time today rob
2: It's been a pleasure. I love talking about it.
0: I hope you enjoyed my chat with Rob Drummond. Now I'm going to leave you with this fun fact. Have you ever heard of camel case? No, it's not a suitcase made from camels. It's when you use capital letters within a word, usually when two words are joined together to create a new word. Now, you see this all the time in company names. For example, YouTube with a capital Y for U and then capital T for tube, but it's one word. Um, it's... Has two capital letters in there, even though it's one word, or PlayStation, which is capital P and capital S, but it is one word, or Microsoft's OneDrive, which is capital O for one and capital D for drive, but it's one word, right? Now, as you can imagine, camel case became a lot more common with the rise of the internet because domain names can't have spaces, but the capitals like make the individual words easier to read but it's not new in English. You can see it used in words like McDonald, for example. The technical name is actually medial capitals, but I prefer camel case, there you go, camel case. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending time with me this week. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoyed uh, this week's episode. If you'd like to connect with other listeners and myself on social media, do join our listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. Love to have you in there. So many aspiring and emerging and established authors from all walks of life. So it's great to be able to share ideas and also just um, chat to each other about the things that we're experiencing, our wins, and any challenges we're facing as well. Feel free to connect with me personally on social media. You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter, at writercentre.com.au slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.